welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, I, I describe him as the sun at the center of the Turned Out a Punk universe, and by the end of this episode, I believe you will be inclined to agree with me on the show today from Spaz, from Slapham, Chris Dodge. That's right, Chris Dodge, legend, uh, purveyor of power violence, uh, member of No Use for a Name, member of Trappist most recently, and also member of the podcast Hour of the Barbarian, expert in beer, expert in international hardcore, expert in aggressive music everywhere, and just, just someone I had to get on the show. This guy can connect Cool Keith to No Use for a Name. To entombed. That that's like a holy trinity or an unholy trinity. But more on all that in a second. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you know there's an email address turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you would like to uh, support this podcast, the best way of doing that is by telling all your friends or going over to iTunes, writing a review and rating it over there or on whatever service you listen to podcasts on. But, but tell your friends. That's the best way to do it. Tell all your buds. Uh, also, speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the loving, kind support of my friends. And I, I'm not just saying that because they they give me money to make this thing happen. I mean, they're legitimately my friends over there at Vans. Uh, they came aboard a while ago, said, we want you to keep doing this thing however you want to do it. Uh, and that's what we've been doing. So thank you very much to them. Also, if you're looking for this show on Facebook, there is a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer and... And really, uh, manager of my life in a lot of ways, too, Tristan Abraham. So big love and thank you to Tristan. Uh, and, and I think that's it. I think that's it for the plug part of the show. On to today's show. Today, uh, oh, actually, actually, sorry, before I go on, there's also Turn Out of Punk Footnotes hosted by myself and Chris O'Toole. You will see that in your podcast feed for Turned Out of Punk. And we try and do it every week. Right now, it's a little bit up in the air because I'm on tour and traveling and stuff like that. But we'll get back to it. We'll get back to it promptly. I actually saw Dave Martin, a member of the Turned Out of Punk footnote family last night. A man I love very, very much. So Good to see you last night, Dave. I love you, buddy. Uh, and anyway, Dave uh, is going to be back on that show very soon. And the other Dave, David Up, is going to be back on that show very soon. We're going to do a big mailbag one. We're, we got big plans for that thing. But yeah, right now, because of touring, it's a little sparse. Also, Oil and Flowers, hosted by Buddha Blaze and myself along for the ride as Sidekick, a cannabis podcast done by two medical cannabis users. That uh, I have a lot of fun doing. We haven't done a one in a while, but we got one coming up. We're going to have some stuff coming up for that podcast as well. So keep your eyes peeled for those things in your feed on to today's show. Oof. Well, for we today's show, I'll give you a little bit of an update about where I'm at right now. Right now, I'm in a hotel room in Brooklyn, New York, about to uh, run off and do a collaboration with uh, Denzel Curry. Uh, yesterday, I... Flew home from Boston after playing a show there. 
arrived in Toronto, went to the house of Strombo, shout out to George, and did a collaboration with Sharon and Bram of the Elephant Show fame. So I'm having a weird trip. I'm having a really weird trip. Right now I might sound a little different because I left my microphone in my bag, which is currently making its way over to the studio to set up the gear for the Denzel Curry thing. So I apologize for that. Uh, Tour has been interesting. You know, as many of you who listen to this podcast know, it's been a pretty shit year for me. Uh, and, uh, tour in general brings out a lot of anxiety for me and, uh, and the like, but it's been amazing, uh, being out here, um, not so much being amazing being out here, but being out here, it's been amazing to meet so many people that are so, so supportive and, and people that, I don't know, just come up to me after a show and, and really remind me that I'm incredibly fortunate and blessed to be able to do this. And, uh, yeah. And then you, you got to keep on living. So I really do want to thank, uh, everyone who's come out so far to these fucked up shows and, and said something to me after the show, gave me a hug or, or opened up and, uh, uh, yeah, we're all going to get through this. We're definitely all going to get through this, um, in some way, shape or form. Uh, it's been a fun tour, but as you can tell, it's, it's been, uh, uh, a, a haggering one, haggering, haggard. Oh, that's that guy from uh, Harry Potter. Haggering one, I guess. It my my. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm running around, running around. But that's what you do on tour. That's part of the fun. So that's where I'm at right now. Um, there will be some cool stuff coming up on this tour. I think I've got a couple episodes planned in the near future. So hopefully we'll get to those. Uh, and uh, yeah. Um, that's it. On to today's show for real this time. Today on the show, Chris fucking Dodge. Chris Dodge, um, I say it to him on the show, Chris Dodge to me is one of the coolest people of all time. Growing up, uh, they referenced all the cool things. They they made the coolest music. They knew the coolest bands. I'm talking about his band Spaz. Uh, also, he ran this label Slapham that was like the tastemaker's tastemaking label. And I think that record label uh, is served very well by history. When you go back and look at the records he put out, man, it is a breadth of incredible stuff. This is a super nerdy episode. This is one of those episodes where uh, I don't know how much mass appeal it's going to have as far as the content that I engage with Chris about, but there's a lot of great stories in this as well. Uh, It was an opportunity for me to exercise a lot of – punishing demons in my body that I've had towards this guy. Like just wanted to find out all this nerdy shit. And believe me, there is more than enough room for part two and part three. I'm already working on that in my head. Uh, I'm not going to blather on anymore. Uh, I'm going to let you sit back, relax, and enjoy Chris Dodge on Turned Out Upon. Chris. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, as I was just awkwardly telling you off air, uh, in the most verbose way I could, you are kind of a sun at the center of this universe that Turned Out a Punk is. You know, you are. we are revolving around you in a certain way. Well, it's about time. It's about goddamn time. I agree. Exactly. God damn it. I, I really agree. And I, there are... So many questions I want to talk to you about because I not only I've only think I've met you in person twice and I don't expect you to remember either of these times, but they were uh, a long time ago as fan. Uh, where I met where you. was that? I met you the first time 
it was around the release party. I, I saw you guys play with Capitals Casualties and I believe Fat Day at the Gilman. And hmm. um, it would have been 98, 99 maybe? Fat Day. Is that that band from, weren't they from Florida or something? Boston, I believe. Boston. Okay. And they would jump on trampolines and they had like little, uh, they had little like sensors underneath the trampolines and it would make music. Oh, weird. I kind of remember this. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. I, I completely know. forgot about that. I'm, I'm having this weird, uh, yeah, yeah, like this, this this strange flashback. It's vaguely familiar. Okay. It's like a weird repressed memory okay. that, that you're conjuring up right now. You if pit- I start crying, you'll know why. Yeah, can you picture a fat Canadian Punisher kid who had just been punishing you with questions? Oh, that was, yeah, I remember that vividly, of course. Here I am. <laughs> Here I am all these years later, my friend. Uh, wow. No, and then another time, it was when you were playing with Despise You, and you guys played with Trash Talk. At um, a festival in Portland. In Portland, yeah, that's right. At uh, Satyricon. At Satyricon, too. And so, yeah, that's but, right. But I've never had the opportunity to to ask you all these burning questions I've had. So this is one of these episodes that I've been really, really looking forward to. Yeah, yeah, let's get to it. Well, they, I, I was going to say that I think the last time I saw Fucked Up was in L.A. Oh, boy, I, I want to say it was, there was some... Sort of fest thing going on at Zen Sushi. Do yes. You remember that place here? Yes. Yeah. It was us, Righteous Jams, and Municipal Waste, I believe, was also. Oh, and Deadfall, yes. I think, was also on the bill. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you were yeah, at that yeah. show. They, that is so awesome. I had no idea. Yeah, because there was, uh, they, they had bands upstairs and downstairs. I, I kind of have a foggy memory on who was playing what because I saw a few shows there. That was kind of an odd spot for them. But I remember it being very overcrowded. You guys played downstairs. Municipal Ways played upstairs, and there was it was so crowded. It was one of those types of shows, like a weird stadium concert where there's like <laughs> not even any room to stand or breathe or anything, and you're just like crammed, like <laughs> very very closely shoulder to shoulder with everybody, and it just have people smashing you from every direction. <laughs> yeah, no, those are those are uh, those are those shows that look back in in memory really well, but experience very poorly. Yeah, like oh, this sucks, but I, <laughs> I, th- I think it's good. But <laughs> well, I know something that is definitely speaking good. of it sucks, but I think it's good. Let's let's get on to that's the exact question. opposite way I was going to go with it. I was going to say, Chris, I know something that's going to be awesome, and that's <laughs> this episode. But I got to start them all off. The, sorry, I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, Chris, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I don't remember the very first time, but <clears throat> I was pretty young. Um, I was born in 1969, so I grew up in the 70s. And I remember kind of in the late 70s, um, I started I started really liking hard rock. And so I was always looking, in retrospect, I remember I was always looking for something harder, you know, like, ah. Hard, you know, like ACDC, yeah, hard rock. Mm-hmm. And um, so then I, I think that's kind of what was the, the impetus for for kind of being open to punk rock when I finally heard it. It's just like I was always looking for, you know, it's like I liked ACDC and then I discovered Van Halen. I'm like, yeah, Van Halen's hard rock. And uh, I was always looking for something else and got in the Black Sabbath. and But it, but it seemed like there wasn't enough 
other bands like that out there. And so, um, like I grew up on, on Kiss, ACDC, Van Halen, stuff like that. And I had actually a, a friend of mine, um, Steve Papoutsis, who I was friends with in kindergarten and friends with through high school. In fact, we started uh, No Use for a Name together much, much later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was probably, it was, I want to say it was around 1980-ish. And he had um, he had an older sister who had gotten married, and her husband was into punk. And so he would he would go over to his brother in law's house and hear these records and come back with them and be like, "Oh, you gotta check this out." He's like, "This band is better than Kiss." I'm like, "No way, no band is better than Kiss." <laughs> and he's like, yeah, "You gotta check this out." And I heard the the first record they brought back was uh, the Cramps, the songs the Lord taught us, mm-hmm. their, their first album. And I heard that first song TV set, and I didn't get it. I was just like, "Ah, I don't know." Like this guy can't even. Like listen to that solo. It's, it's it's terrible. Like I didn't I I didn't hate it, but I didn't really like it. Like I just I didn't understand it. And then uh later on I kind of listened to the rest of the album. Like, okay, yeah, this this actually is kind of cool. And then it, it kind of I think it kind of grew from there where um you know, every couple of weeks he'd go and go to his brother-in-law's house and come back with these records one by one and be like, "Oh, yeah, there's this band the Weirdos." And here's this the uh, ten inch by the Dickies. I'm like, oh, cool. I heard that song, that B side of that, uh, you know, the, the the ten inch, the white vinyl one of Paranoid. Yeah, yeah. That B side that has uh, Hideous and You Drive Me Ape. And at that point, I'm like, oh my god, this is the fastest song I've ever heard. And it's only like a minute long. Like, oh my god, I can't <laughs> believe. Like, and my mind was absolutely blown. Like, like, listen to that. It's like, I couldn't believe how fast the song was. And I had one of those old record players, um, you know, that has like the long spindle in the middle and the arm that comes over so you could stack records. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like if you, if you leave that arm open, um, it, your, your turntable will replay the record when it reaches the end, like the needle comes back and then it just goes back and starts again mm-hmm. so i listen I, I remember like certain records like that uh the dickies 10 inch and and some of the weirdos records and stuff like that um i would just i would do that where i just listened to one side on repeat over and over and over again and um and i kind of i i, I listened to i listened to stuff like that that i had access to but that was really at the time you know talking about the very early 80s and and so it's not like there's a, a wealth of uh, resources out there if you're, you know, 11 years old or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so well, it's, it, I'm kind of at the, at the mercy of whatever he happens to bring back from his brother's house. So it's just like one record at a time every couple of weeks or every month. And so, you know, I, I'd stumble across something on TV every once in a while, like a story about like, oh, new wave you know, the the crazy new wave explosion. And so they'd have, uh, or like, you know, on Saturday night live, I'd watch Saturday night live and see Devo and the B 52s. And and I liked all that stuff. So I liked all the new wave stuff. I I like punk. Um, I, I still like some, some of the rock stuff. I kind of didn't, I was kind of in this weird transition where I didn't really know what was what. And it actually took me quite a few years to, 
understand what punk was. And in fact, when I, when I, after a few years, when I finally found some college radio stations and um, found out that there were punk shows and stuff like that, and started listening to to those things and and uh, getting a clue where to start picking up records, you know. By and 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 then you know, years later when I was starting to get actively involved in in uh, like writing letters to Maximum Rock and Roll because I got my first issue of Maximum Rock and Roll probably about 1984. Um, Where'd you buy that? Was it just uh, at a record store or was it at? Um, I, th- I can't remember if it was at a record store or if it was, if it was mail order. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd, I'd heard about Maximum Rock and Roll because there was, there was a local free paper called BAM and there was an, a cover story of the Dead Kennedys. So I read I read that thing several times through and, and in the interview, um, Jello had mentioned <clears throat> he didn't mention maximum rock and roll and they had some, they had a contact address. So I wrote to him to, to get info and I got this postcard back from Timmy O'Hannon. And, uh, I may have, I may have sent like $2 for a copy or something like that. Um, but you know, once, once I got that, that just completely opened the floodgates. Cause you know, it's like, I, I read that thing cover to cover every single month that I started getting it because, you know, that was like the, this this window to an entire world and like a worldwide scene. I'm like, what the hell? What what is all this? And it's just incredible, you know. And I, every single record review, I read everything, every scene report, everything, and and that kind of was how I, I that was kind of the gateway of of getting involved in stuff and. And, you know, I, I wrote a letter to them that they actually published. And it was, like, very empowering. Like, oh, hey, I'm just, like, this stupid kid from the suburbs. And, and you know, they, they actually published this. And I, I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe I should write about something else. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, like, around that time, like, roughly 1984-ish, um, I my biggest concern was like, Oh shit. I've, I've missed hardcore mm-hmm. because by that time, um, you know, minor threat had broken up. They were approached them playing like all these bands that I was, that was really into. None of them were around anymore or they had changed their style like SSD and DYS and bands like that were starting to put out like super shitty records and, and changing their style. Nobody liked black flag. Like my war came out and people were kind of lukewarm on that. I'm like, yeah. ah, what is this? It's slow. Henry's got long hair. What the fuck is this? You know? <laughs> and so I was just like, God, I missed hardcore. I missed <laughs> the whole hardcore thing. Like now I'm into it and nobody else is into it. And you know, they, they think it's, it's over and I've, I've missed the boat and this sucks. So. Were there any other kids kind of in your neighborhood that were into this music? Like other than, you know, your friends, but like, were there any local bands that were kind of playing that were still doing punk stuff or punk indebted kind of stuff? Um, at that time, I mean, I don't know, like very early on, it would, I didn't, I didn't know anybody, you mm-hmm. know, I kind of going through junior high, which would have been, you know, uh, 81, 82. I had a few friends and, and we tried to, we were trying to all figure out, what it was all about. You know, I bought a, been buying Ramones records and sex pistols and stuff like that at the time and would loan them out to my friends. But, 
you know, meaning like three dudes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but really, but really nobody, you know, I, I didn't really start getting to know any local bands till I want, I want to say around 85 ish or so. What, what were and, the first shows you went to? Um, first, first, show i got to go to i'd I'd been wanting to go for a while but i was so young Mm -hmm. and i just didn't have a way of going anywhere you know plus it's like when when you're that young and your parent you tell your parents oh i want to (laughs) go i want to go to san francisco (laughs) i want to see the dead kennedys exactly like what (laughs) 14 are you insane (laughs) no no way no way not happening (laughs) so um yeah, I missed out on a lot of stuff, but um, I, I think I finally got to because I, I neglected to say I, I grew up in the um, San Jose, Sunnyvale area in, in California. It's so like just south of San Francisco, probably about an hour or so. And um, and there there were tons of bands from um, from San Jose, you know, the whole like skate punk scene with the with bands like the Faction and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, so those were some of the earliest bands I got to see um, were the bands in San Jose. And, and the first show I went to, I think it was around, yeah, it was about 84-ish. Um, I finally talked my mom into letting me go see Ribsy and uh, Executioner. And then I got to see another show at The Faction and uh, who else was playing? Some other just local bands that, that nobody remembers. This band, The Stiffs, who was old guys from Los Olvidados. Oh, sick. And... Um, and stuff like that. So, is that that? Is that that? Would those, would those have been in that house where it was like an outdoor show space in San Jose? Uh, um, no, I know with the with the ramp and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I never got to see any shows there. You know, I always heard about that place. I was kind of more towards downtown San Jose. I, I never got to go there, but I I you know as the years went by, I got to to check out some other cool stuff, and it was always in like really weird impromptu places, you know, much like it is now. I mean, mm-hmm. we were just talking about me seeing you in a sushi place. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, one of, one of my all time favorite shows is one of the earlier ones. And, and like one of the, I don't like to brag about a lot of stuff, but this is one lineup. I like to brag that I got to see, which was, uh, at this dance studio in San Jose in 85. And it was, um, it was Adrenaline OD, DRI, Special Forces, Blast, and Christ on Parade. Whoa. And, and that, that was one of my all-time favorite shows. And um, I remember, actually, I'd, I'd shaved my head for that show. <laughs> and, um, and it was funny because uh, a lot of people were treating me different. You know, I, I was never a, a skinhead or whatever. I just kind of shaved my head because, you know you're a punky kid. That's what you do. Mm. Uh, you know, get rid of the feathered hair and <laughs> shave your head <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, shave your head. And, and I, I had, had all sorts of homemade t-shirts that I used with, uh, use laundry markers and I just buy a pack of white t-shirts and use laundry markers and make my own shirts. Cause I didn't know where to get shirts. Um, but I remember going to that show. Um, I was bald and I was wearing a homemade agnostic front shirt. And like all, all the skinheads were coming up to me and were like all 
pal Z and, and everyone else, when it would be walking through, would get out of my way. I'd be like, Oh, this is weird. What's going on? And I was just like as goofy then as I am now. Yeah. Um, but I just happened to be bald and I'm like, Oh, this is a different dynamic. Interesting. <laughs> um, so Fortunately, I didn't let that go to my head, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> so when did you start playing music? Cause it, like you start putting out or you start appearing on records in 86, right? So it must've been a short jump from when you started going to these shows. to when you started actually playing in bands. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause I started, well, I started going to high school in 84. So that's when, um, you know, I get a little bit older, start having a few friends who are a little bit older who have cars and, you know, you're a little bit more independent. So that, that's when, that's why kind of around that era, like 84, 85 ish is when, I was able to really start getting involved in things and kind of meeting local bands. Um, one of the first local bands I palled around with was uh, Caustic Notions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started doing show flyers for them. And then eventually I was uh, that this local promoter, this woman, Ellen, who do shows in San Jose. Um, she liked my flyers, so she'd have me do flyers for, for her shows. And would I'd get to get in for free if i did a flyer for one of the shows i was just excited that someone would that i got to i got to make a flyer for the show and Mm -hmm. someone else would print it and distribute it around around town um but then i was in uh there were some guys from high school had this band legion of doom and that was the first that was the first real band that i was in um a couple years before me and my friend steve uh, we tried starting a band um he called it angry white boys <laughs> um and it was just <laughs> he came up with the name um and it was he's like yeah because we're angry we're white and we're boys <laughs> okay <laughs> so we had our little our little awb logo with the, with the circle a and stuff like that um needless to say we didn't do anything did you guys record at all, or we recorded? Or? We recorded on a boombox, um, you know, just some horrible recordings. Actually, there's one song that came out on one of those uh, those BCT compilations. Really, the the bad compilation tapes. Yeah, and I don't have a copy of it. I never got a copy. And that's, a, that's a huge honor. Like that, <laughs> those are like you know international, you know, hardcore comp kind of one on ones for people. It was one of is one of the later ones, and I I don't even remember what it was called, and I think they even got the name of the band wrong. <laughs> um, but I know we were on there because I, I remember when when we recorded, we were at Steve's house, and we recorded some songs which were of course horrible. And I said, you know what, I'm going to send this to bad compilation tapes because in their ad it says it says band send us send us your songs, no band will be turned down. <laughs> And so I made a point of that when I sent it to him. I'm like, it does say no band will be turned down. So here's our tape. So I was, you know, just trying to, you know, force them to to use something. Um, so they did, they did put one song on one of the tapes. Well, it worked. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They they never sent us a copy, um, and never really acknowledged it. But a couple of years later, I found it. But. Anyhow, so there was that, but the first kind of legit band was a couple of years after that. Um, so that would have been about 85, 
85, 86, probably 85-ish, um, the band Legion of Doom. And there, there were these guys who were a little bit younger than me. And I heard them, and they were playing, they actually played at our school and were playing like Buzzcocks covers and stuff like that. Like, oh, cool. And I, I found out they needed a singer. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm your singer now. <laughs> so um, we got to actually play some really cool shows. We weren't necessarily a great band, but um, we, we, we were pretty lucky. We um, got to play with, uh, for me, the, the pinnacle was playing with Capital Punishment. Um, oh, from Germany? No, 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 from uh, Fresno. Oh, Fresno, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my all-time favorites, and uh, that was a big deal. We played, probably the best show we played was at, uh, um, uh, what was that place in, in Emeryville, New Method. Oh, the um, New Method? To, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we got to play there with with Capital Punishment and Christ on Parade and uh, two other bands. And we were, since we're, that was in Emeryville, which is up by Berkeley, and we are from San Jose, which was about an hour away. So since we'd traveled a ways to to play the show, um, we got to play in the middle of the bill, which for me, you know, my mind was blown. I'm probably <laughs> you know, like 16 years old. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're making it. You know, there's five bands and we're, we're third right on, you know, <laughs> we kick ass. Be headlining in no time. Yeah, exactly. And we, we played, uh, there was some big show at the San Jose Convention Center with, um, let me see, it was Social Distortion and the Vandals and Dr. No. And I think Capital Punishment played that one as well. And a couple of local bands, Mistaken Identity, a few others. But um, yeah, we, we didn't really go anywhere. And in fact, those guys all wanted to, wanted to play metal after a while. And they kept trying to talk me into it. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're, we're like, this is good. You know, we're, we're getting somewhere with this. I'm like, yeah, you know, um, yeah. What if you, you know, what if you took lessons and learned to really sing? <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> that's so stupid. <laughs> no way. They're like, oh, okay. And they're trying to be, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to be indirect about it. And like, We'd be driving around, be like, so um, I don't know, like, what, what, what do you guys think about going metal? Yeah, and <laughs> going metal sounds good. I'm like, no, 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 no. We should, we should stay hardcore. We should, we should stay hardcore. And so they, you know, eventually they, they kind of, we kind of parted ways because it, it was clear that I was the only one who was interested in, in being in a punk band. So, um, well, you guys also, you guys went places. You guys were on that Blind Faith, uh, sort of that. Uh, there's wow. a method to our madness compilation. Yeah, wow, very nice. <laughs> did research this, which does have some Canadian content on it because that's yeah. one of the few appearances of Direct Action. Oh yeah, I love Direct Action. A, yeah, a great band, an unheralded band. Well, that's the thing. I think uh-huh. you know, like, I want to ask you: Were you kind of like, you know, like you guys? I, I, was, I was telling you this off air, but like, I think, you know, through slap through, through spaz and stuff, like kind of set the tone for what it was to be like a hardcore obsessive, you know, like record uh-huh. collecting, you know, and all that kind of stuff, like being aware of international hardcore. Was that something that you were kind of about right away? Or is that something you oh, kind yeah. of developed into? No, that, that was, that was kind of how I was from the beginning. In fact, for whatever reason, I've, I think 
even early, early on, I had that mindset where it was almost like that collector's sort of mentality where, um, you know, before I even had heard punk or knew what it was, when I was just listening to bands like Black Sabbath or, or ACDC or whatever, um, you know, I get the album and I liked them and I wanted everything. Mm-hmm. I wanted to hear everything. I wanted mm-hmm. to, I wanted all of it. Not just, I wasn't just content with, Hey, this album's really good. Cool. I'm just going to listen to this album. It's like, no, what else is there? I gotta, I gotta hear it all. And that, and so, you know, you, you put that in the context of like this obscure hardcore stuff and, and a copy of maximum rock and roll and, and a, a job at Kentucky fried chicken with some disposable, disposable income. And it's like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mail order every single thing in this magazine every month, and that's how I was. I'd write all the all the band interviews, and um, you know all the write ups that were in Maximum Rock and Roll, and they'd say, "Oh, hey, the, this band, uh, you know, send them a self addressed stamp, stamped envelope, and uh, we'll send you info." I'm like, okay, I'm I'm doing I'm writing to every single band. I didn't have anything to say. I'd just be like, "Send me info." <laughs> you know? they'd like send me send me a sticker or whatever or, or like a one page xerox flyer that's you know their catalog of their tape and their one t-shirt or something like that mm-hmm. um but that that was me I, I i just sought out everything just because <coughs> just because i was a fan you know it's like i wasn't trying to necessarily prove anything to anybody but it was just like i i just it just a a geek, you know, mm-hmm. just a, a, mm-hmm. a fan. And I wanted to hear, I wanted to hear everything. And it was just that, uh, you know, that constant thirst for God, what, what else is out there? This is awesome. What, what does it sound like? You know, I get a record to, you know, I get a seven inch by the wretched from Italy and look at their thanks list and be like, okay, who's, who's ours and impact and all these other bands and Negazioni and whatever, and, you know, I think I, I get a sense that that you understand where I'm coming. Oh, 100. percent Like I, I think that's a, <laughs> and I think that's the, the reason. Like I, you know, that's why I'm so excited to talk to you is because I really do feel like, you know, like it, it also like pissed happy children too on that on that first single when like can I come over and see your record collection? But like you are my people. Like I I walked in your sh- your footsteps. You know, like this kind of like need to understand this genre on a global scale. Like, yeah, that's the impetus for this whole, the whole thing I'm doing in life. Right. 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 Um, that comp that not to keep going on about that comp, uh, but that comp tape comp you guys are on with sticky too. I think it's like all these barrier bands. I think it's like the next thing. Oh, you Bay guys Mud? Put yeah. Bay mud. So did the two yeah. bands overlap? Sticky and no use for a name. No, no, Sticky and uh, oh, Legion. And of That's Doom. right. That's right. <clears throat> um, let me think. I think they not not as far as me being in the band. Okay. Um, yeah, we. I'm, I'm I'm just remembering this now. Yeah, actually, there was there was at least one show where Legion of Doom and Sticky played together because Sticky had had another. They, they, the original bass player was uh, Jamie Porter, this friend of the Wilder brothers, and he was he's an incredible bass player. Like, you know, at whatever age that was, sixteen, he was like a better bass player than I'll ever be. He was like, <laughs> he was awesome, um, but he just he just didn't fit. You know, yeah, he, yeah. Just, he just didn't wasn't of the same ilk as those guys. It was just like the typical sort of, Hey, you know, we're, we're all in high school and we want to be in a band. Let's just play together. 
it's like we're in, you know, in, in share that same passion or whatever. But I, uh, Sticky was a band that I was just a huge fan of, and I just um, got to meet those guys. And so we just started hanging out all the time. And that's how I ended up in, in that band. But um, I think when I first met them, I was in Legion of Doom. And then we, the night, Legion of Doom kind of fizzled out and uh, Jamie stopped showing up for practices and they said, Hey, do you, do you want to play bass? I'm like, Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Just, and, you know, thankfully being in high school and not having anything else going on, I could just sit in my room for six hours every night after school and just work on learning the songs and just playing everything over and over. So, um, and so when sticky first forms, like you guys are on that comp, I am records put out. Oh yeah. That's right. Yeah. Thing, uh, yeah. And I think factions on that too. And, and no warning. Yeah. Um, Cause, uh, Adam, Adam bomb Siegel from mm-hmm. uh, the faction. That, that was his label. And yeah, he put that together. It was cause he'd had, God, he had some other bands after, was a faction on that? Factions yeah. on that. Uh, yeah, definitely factions on it. Cause he was, I'm trying to remember the living end too. Is that band on it? Yeah. The end, it was like the living end and then change your name to the end or the other way around. Maybe they started out as the end, then change it to the living end. Um, they're going for more like a, a rock sort of vibe. (laughs) Um, I can't remember who I kind of can vaguely picture that. I don't even know if I have that comp. Uh, I finally found a copy of it actually in the Bay area of all places. Oh Yeah. Um, it was a big yeah, find for me. Other, other bands like uh, Turner with the Drab was a band from then. The Stiffs. I, I can't remember if they were on there or not. I don't know. I don't think they're. I don't think either of those two are on there. But like it is, you know. It once again, it it seems like it's a like what I'm trying to get at. It it looks like Sticky at a certain point. I don't know. Maybe and this is just judging by the discography. But like we're we're part of this scene, and then at a certain point, you become became almost part of the the i guess forming barrier gilman scene um well there there was uh kind of the south bay scene i mean there there was there was all sorts of bands and shows and stuff going on and this was you know around uh 86 or so and then 87 right around that new year's 86 87 was when gilman opened and we'd heard rumors about this club starting up in Berkeley, but there wasn't really any info on it. You know, we, um, our friend Wayne, big Wayne, um, I'd, I'd go to a lot of, he was actually on my ride to a lot of shows up in the city and how he ended up getting to go to a lot of stuff up like at the farm and Ruthie's Inn and, and, uh, um, new method and stuff like that. Um, but we drove up, We'd heard about this place, and and they hadn't opened yet, but we we drove up there, and and it was very kind of unspectacular because it's just like okay, it's just a a room, you know, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a, all right, there's really nothing to see here, and then we heard it, it was funny because all all those the early 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 Gilman shows were all word of mouth, mm-hmm. and they had a whole thing. Tim had this whole directive where he didn't want to advertise. Um, he just wanted, he's like, you know, he, <laughs> it, it's, it's a very kind of Bay, Bay area, um, 
ultra liberal sort of like, you know, it should just be like a learning experience and, you know, it shouldn't matter who's playing. You know, people <laughs> should just go because it's, it's a, it's an opportunity to learn. And, you know? <laughs> so, uh, needless to say the first couple months, I, I, I think it was, they didn't really advertise who was playing and you, it, we would find out just by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, since we let, since we lived an hour away, We'd only go up when we heard about bands that we wanted to see because it's like I'm not going to drive for an hour somewhere and and see bands that I don't care about. Yeah, <laughs> it's like okay, I want to support the scene, but you know I don't know who's playing. Um, you know, the first couple of months there were cool shows like Verbal Abuse and um, um, I think that was that might have been one of the first shows I went to. Verbal Abuse, I forget who else was playing. Maybe Special Forces. And uh, Youth of Today played one of the early shows. It actually, it was a really good lineup. Oh, that's Youth of um, Today and Sons of Ishmael, right? It was, it, yeah, yeah. It's, that was that was later on, but okay. I think the very first time they played it was uh, it was Youth of Today, MDC. Um, I think the I think the Lookouts. Whoa! What a weird bill. And I'm kind of I'm kind of drawing a blank on it, but. That was that was a great time. And it's funny because, you know, the the lookouts. It, it, you know, I I had no idea who they were. I'd never met Lawrence Livermore before, mm-hmm. and um, seeing seeing this guy who's like this in his thirties with these two fourteen year old boys <laughs> playing this you know trashy kind of thrashy short songs. I'm like, yeah, you know, we had a great time. We we I I liked them. Yeah, you know, they weren't great, but but they I thought they were good and I, I enjoyed it. But I was just like, this is weird. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that guy's weird. <laughs> Why is he playing with these little kids? <laughs> but um, so early on, it was a bunch of uh, you know shows like that, and it was like a lot of really weird mixed bills. Like yeah. actually, there was one uh, this guy Frank Moore, um, who is a who's like a paraplegic performance artist guy and he would um it's like like they they put him in the middle of this hardcore show with was it i think scared straight and some other bands who who i'd gone to see um and so in the middle of this this hardcore bill frank moore comes out and he's he's in a wheelchair he's got a mic uh, like a cord a um what do you call it? You know, like the, the headset, headset mic. Yeah. The mic. Yeah. And so like playing these classic rock songs and he's just like, you just kind of like moaning along, like, whoa, what's, you know, the song would end and, and people would just clap and look at each other and be like, okay, <laughs> I don't get it. And then there was like a, a topless woman who came out. She was like naked, but covered in saran wrap who like danced around him. And there were, it was just like stuff like that where they're just like, Oh, they're just being absurd and kind of wacky. And, um, so it was like, you know, performance art in between hardcore bands, which is, which is pretty freaking cool. Like yeah. I wish there were more mixed bills like that. Um, you know, where it's just unexpected. I, I think that's been lost since the, the eighties is the whole thing where it's just like, probably cause there were so few bands in comparison back then. Um, that just anyone who's, you know, 
punk or industrial or either the early definition of industrial or just kind of odd or bizarre would all just be thrown together on a bill, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's just an assumption that you're kind of like-minded individuals. We're, so, uh, well, I think that's the thing about, I love about that scene that you guys were in. It's like you guys, neurosis. I mean, obviously when I say you guys sticky, but like neurosis yeah. Christ on a parade, um, like Operation Ivy, Crimshrine. Yeah. Like it's just yeah. like it's just all it's like it's like you like punk. Well, here's the whole spectrum in yeah. one scene. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Cause it was all well, it's like, well, we're all in punk bands. That's yeah. why that's why we're on these shows together. That's why we all hang out at the same place together. You know, it's it's a punk scene. That's <laughs> that's why we're here. It's like, okay, some there's pop punk bands and there's like really harsh bands and there's mm-hmm thrash bands and there's kind of you know poppy whatever sort of sing-along bands and experimental stuff going on and yeah you know the feeders playing well i was gonna say like that's the one show i had to ask you about were you at that feeders show oh yeah yeah what was that that like to be at it was it's it's funny because um i was actually up front because i was a big feeders fan Mm -hmm. and um and what man, people were pissed. <laughs> people were so pissed because, you know, for I know a lot of people don't know the the whole story or scandal or whatever behind it, but it was uh, a frank discussion. Uh, the the guy from the feeders, he came up on stage and he had, um, he had a dead cat. Um, with a noose around its neck and it was like tied around his neck. So it was like hanging in front of him, almost like a tie. So he had this dead cat on him and they had a, they had a dead dog that they laid down on the stage in front of the kick drum. And he had all these live crickets glued to his head and they just launched into their set, which is, you know, offensive on its own. And, uh, and so like, you know, the more and more people who are there was like, understanding you know like during the course of their set figuring out hey there's dead animals on stage just just started losing it they're like <laughs> freaking out and the whole mindset of of especially early gilman was like if someone disagreed with something there's this whole thing where like oh we have an open mic policy and you know anyone can speak their mind at any time and um it was very open and open everything's open to discussion whatever so there were there were so many shows where like in the middle of a set someone would be would, like <laughs> grab the mic and start spouting off against something and like try and you know incite some sort of debate or you know like let's have a thoughtful conversation about this subject right now in the middle of this band set well um everyone was so pissed about the feeders that um there, there are a bunch of people who got on stage and like tried to stop it. And there was like, we, we want to protest the, you know, the fact that they're, that they're fucking with animals and whatever. And yeah, it just kind of, <laughs> it kind of devolved into mayhem. And it's funny cause you know, for years I forgot that adrenaline OD played that show. Like adrenaline OD was actually the headliner, but like after that whole, they had to go thing, on that, after that's that. The, <laughs> That's the only thing that anybody remembered or ever talked about. That's the only thing I remembered. And Adrenaline OD is one of my favorite bands. And like years and years later, someone's like, yeah, when AOD played that show, I'm like, 
Oh shit, you're right. <laughs> they did. I completely like blanked that out of my mind <laughs> that they played. Could you imagine um, being in that settlement room at the back of the Gilman or the front oh of the Gilman? Like oh, frank the, discussions there with the crickets still clear. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, well, we did drive from New Jersey. Uh yeah. <laughs> but I know um you know, for months after that, because they they would have meetings every um, every Sunday, and it was one of those things where like it was so egregious that they're like, "We need to have an emergency meeting." You know? It's like, what are you, what are you gonna, what are you gonna discuss? Yeah. You know, it's 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 an event that happened and it's over. And it's, what what else is there to discuss? And clearly, you're not gonna have them back. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> no feeders feeders uh i don't think there's been a repeat performance right like i don't think there's been frank discussion coming back and being like yeah one more time one more yeah, time, one more time. time. <laughs> um, I, I did see him i did see him at at the farm a little bit after that and they didn't they didn't do anything like that he did try smoking a tampon and doing <laughs> some other stuff but there was there's nobody there and, i know <laughs> it's it's nuts because they put out like one of the best one, two, seven inch LP punches of all time in punk rock. Oh yeah. But then and not, the, I mean, the, not much the, having, after. having, having a sandpaper cover. Yeah. So badass. So badass. <laughs> so fucking punk. It's like, we're, we're going to have sandpaper on the front and the back of our album cover. So it destroys your other records. It, even just like having so your, rad. your singer holding <laughs> a dead rat in his mouth on the cover of your seven. Yeah. Inch. Like it, and, but like, yeah, like never really followed it up. In the same well, way. Yeah, they had some later releases, but it all kind of fizzled after that. Yeah. And then they do, I see they do resurgences here and there, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, where did you kind of go, like, with Sticky at, the, at that point? Like, are you playing, like, was there an audience for you guys at these Mixed Bill shows? Or are you kind of eventually finding it, yourselves going it, to play kind of, Yeah, we kind of found found the audience by playing Gilman because that, that, that's the thing is like we you know we start going to Gilman regularly <laughs> and that's how everyone that's how we kind of integrated into that scene is just mm -hmm. because we were regulars you know the, the, the first couple months like I was saying they didn't advertise who was playing um, so we didn't go as often but then a couple months into it they <laughs> they they decided well you know maybe we should actually advertise who's playing because we want we want to we want to pay we, we want to pay our bills so people if you know if a band's playing that people want to see that they should probably know that this band is playing and they will pay to come see them so um so they're smart enough to start putting out flyers and calendars and and more people to show up um so once we knew who was playing and and almost every single weekend was great it it, it came to a point very quickly where me and my friends would go up there pretty much every single weekend, mm -hmm. sometimes multiple times on a weekend. Cause they, they typically had a sad, I, I think they typically had a Friday and Saturday show. And then a lot of times they'd also have a Sunday show and it was a bit much to go up all three days in a row. But, um, sometimes I would, I would go up twice in a row mm -hmm. and just like every single weekend. And if you're there, um, just like everybody else who's there all the time, you eventually just kind of get to be friends and it becomes its own scene. And, and that's what happened with, um, you know, sticky being part of that is that we weren't, we weren't from the East Bay, like all the other bands, like 
uh, you know, Crimp Shine and Op Ivy and Isocracy and all them. But um, there's kind of this shared goofiness and, and the fact that we all, you know, liked this club and, and liked what was going on, that, that that's how we became part of it. So was it like, because like you think about great labels, I think Slapham, one of the great labels for like early releases, like just like what a run you have with that label, but also like Lookout Records, like what a run mm-hmm. Lookout 1 to 12 is. Um, is that just because of being in that scene and just picking all those bands or is that yeah. curating the best bands that were happening at the time? No, I think it was just, um, there were plenty of other bands. There were tons of bands going on at that time, but it was, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like the, the records they put out were really the core of bands who played there fairly regularly and, and not like there were any of them were huge, but had a decent following and, and were productive, you know, it's like, and of course you can't, you can't put out every single band. And that's mm-hmm. kind of one of the things that you lament as being a, someone who runs a label. There's always bands that you want to work with. It's like, well, I, I can't put out records by everybody. And, you know, so some bands get grouchy about it. It's like, no, sorry, no dogs <laughs> and tally ho. We're not going to put out your record. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to find somebody else. Was there uh, a band? But, that- but that's that's basically what it was. It just kind of encapsulated the, the core of of bands of that, that early Gilman scene. Do you think there was a band, though, that, that should have been or that could have been documented that wasn't given the, the documentation they deserve? Um like Rabbit Lassie to me is one of those bands that you know. Oh yeah, Rabbit Lassie was was great. They um, they're also kind of. I mean, Sticky in a way we were kind of outsiders just because we were South Bay instead of East Bay, mm-hmm. and we I mean we we were different from from the other bands. Um, but I mean, Rabbit Lassie was also kind of outsiders. They they weren't really East Bay. They're from over the hill in San Ramon, which is a nicer suburb, and so I think. You're like, oh yeah, these these rich kids are coming over and <laughs> play hardcore. They're good, but but yeah, yeah, they're they're not East Bay. Yeah. <laughs> um but they I, I don't know why they never really put out anything. I, I know when they changed their name to Breakaway later on, they they put out something. I forget who, who released it. But... Teamwork, I think, did one of the pressings of the seven oh, really? was it Soul Force okay. Records, maybe? Po- I... possibly, possibly. Um Jeff Bauer's label. Yeah, like from Arizona, right? Last Option, yeah. Great. Last Option's a great band. On their demo, they do an agnostic front cover. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going through demo tapes the other day and found it, and I was like, oh, my God, they do an AF cover. How sick. Yeah, uh, yeah on the, that was one of my, my uh, early early accomplishments was the Last Option record. Their 7-inch, the, um, the first pressing of it, the band photo, the live photo that's on the back, I'm I'm – in the live photo. That's awesome. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I have the first pressing of that seven inch, so I will there be you posting go. that you on find Instagram. It. I look exactly <laughs> the same. Um, how did you, uh, Sticky, I mean, become like the relationship with off the disc records start? Um, it was just through, I guess it was just through the mail. Uh, Chris Wilder uh, was at the, guitarist for sticky and you know he is chris chris wilder and todd wilder the brothers mm-hmm. the guitarist and the drummer um they had started it and the all the mail went to their house and and um i think it was just 
think Eric from uh, yeah, the Mega Wimp Zine and started doing off was doing off the disc with uh, I forget the other guy's name. Um, he had I think they just heard the demo and had sent a letter, which is how you communicate with everybody in those days. Is <laughs> just put a letter in an envelope, send it off, and hope that someone writes back to you in a month. And um, so he, I, I, I'm not really sure how that all came together, but I do know that he said, okay, we're going to do a really limited pressing. It, it, well, they wanted to do a record, but they said, um, you guys have to, but we're going to do such a limited pressing and it's going to be so expensive to do that. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think they paid for the studio time, but then we had to buy copies from them. <laughs> <laughs> like we're printing 500 and we can and we're like okay well can you send us money so we can record i said yeah we can do that but when the record comes out you have to you have to send us money so we can send you copies of the record so we actually we, we never got a free copy of, of that record is, them all. is that what spurred you to start slap am um i'm not no. gonna no, yeah <laughs> um yeah, like, you know, if I start slapping yeah. him, I can make the I can make the bands buy their records. <laughs> I gotta do this. This, this is the, fantastic. This, this is the like best, best money making scheme ever. <laughs> um, um, well, also, what a label that was off the disc records too for just signing. Oh yeah, 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 and and that was kind of a uh, you know that, that that was that next level you know early kind of the, the early burgeoning noise core. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pre-grind sort of era, you know, because Eric Eric Keller um, was, of course, the vocalist for Fear of God. And so uh, I already sent Chris Wilder that Fear of God record, and we listened to that, and that was, that opened a whole new window of, <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> what what is going on? Like, <laughs> this is just so over the top. You know, the vocals are so gruff. It's so primitive. Like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. I was going to say, like, were you guys familiar with that, or just through knowing him uh, about that Fear of God record? No, it was it was just that, just from him sending it. Yeah, yeah, you know, just sending a copy, and we just sit in Chris's room and listen to it. Be like, oh my god, listen to that! My hands deep in your guts. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> the the one outlier on that label to me is the fact that Red Fisher, the pre Weaker Than's band, has a seven inch. On off the disc for some reason. Really? Yeah, a great huh. band. No disrespect to the band, but huh. definitely a bit of an outlier when compared to, you know, Fear of God lyrics or oh, yeah, or yeah, Rupture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, you look at um, yeah. In retrospect, it's like wow they they did the sticky release. They did the the infest twelve inch. Yep. It's like the Fear of God stuff. It's like wow. Morbid Angel sleep. Yeah, exactly. It's the powerhouse. Holy it's crap. Not, well, well, and that that brings me to the next powerhouse I want to talk about, which is Slapaham Records. Oh, of course. That's why I was I was I was leading you. That on was a perfect that, segue. It was yeah. a. It's like it's like you and me have scripted this, right? Uh, 
But at, yeah, speaking of powerhouses, yeah, speaking of power, actually, my label. Actually, now I'm going to ruin the perfect segue because I got to jump back and talk about noise for a name. Oh yeah, yeah. and how did <laughs> speaking how, of non of of, of <laughs> speaking of brutal <laughs> noise for name? Yes, the uh, the most uh, vicious record in your catalog. Oh um, yeah, but yeah, but actually, like, how did noise for a name come together? Because it does overlap with sticky a little bit, right? Yes, yeah. Um, the news for name started. It was uh, again me and Steve Papoutsis, who's uh, one of my friends who I'd known since kindergarten, and uh, the one who you know via his brother-in-law had had kind of enlightened both of us and into a lot of early punk rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd wanted to we'd wanted to play music forever, but neither one of us really knew how. Um, which is, you know, as punk as it gets, <laughs> because it's like, well, we don't, we have, we we have no talent, we we don't know how to write songs or do anything, but you know what? Damn it, we're starting a band, and so you know, we did our angry white boys recordings, and then uh, later on, another friend of ours from uh, grade school, um, Rory Koff, who's a drummer. Um, you know, he hadn't, he wasn't like a close friend of ours, but at some point Steve was like, yeah, remember Rory from, uh, from Panama elementary? Yeah. Um, he plays drums and, and he likes punk rock and, and he said that we could jam over there. I'm like, Oh, right on. Let's go. He's like, yeah, he's got a guitar. I didn't have a guitar, but, um, you know, he went over there and, <laughs> and he happened to have a guitar. I had no idea how to tune it, but we, you know, but Rory knew how to play like a, a fast kind of, you know, just do 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 sort of beat and like, yeah, it doesn't matter what we're playing. Let's just make a whole bunch of noise and yell. And, you know, that's the song. And so it all kind of started like that. And then, um, that, the, so that would have been probably 84 ish. And then in the next year or two, I actually learned how to play guitar and, um, bought a guitar and said, Hey, you know, we should get together with Rory and, and maybe we'll, uh, we'll write some, some actual songs. So that was, I, I think, I, I kind of mix up some of my years here and there, but I'm pretty sure it was 86, like late 86, um, that we first started practicing. And so it was me and Rory and Steve and this guy, John Meyer, on vocals. And they want, they knew this guy, uh, Doug Judd, who is a guitarist for this local band called the Barfing Dogs. <laughs> And so they, they're like, yeah, he want him to play second guitar. I'm like, okay, cool. And then, uh, John, I think was kind of insecure about his vocals. So he brought in this guy Ramon on vocals mm-hmm. as well. So we had two vocalists, two <laughs> guitarists, drums and bass. So the first show that we played, which was at Gilman. So it would have been early 87 or like spring of 87, something like that. Um, I think it, we we were a six piece, which is so bizarre. <laughs> well, we were but, such a weird mishmash. Like we we had had no idea, no direction. It was just like this bizarre conglomeration of you know. They had like once Steve spoke Greek, so there was one song where he put down the ba- he gave the bass to Ramon, and then he sang the song in Greek, and it's like. <laughs> <laughs> it was so dumb in retrospect, but yeah. this band sounds amazing. What was it? Were you guys playing like the stuff off of uh, the the Woodpecker records 
seven inch or what were you? Pulling? Um, I don't. Uh, it was like see. I don't know. I'd have to see. I'd have to see the the song. A couple of the songs did carry over. One of them might have. One of them might have been. Um, you know, we we wrote a bunch of songs. We, we were trying to. We, we we went from this weird mishmash of of just I don't know odd hardcore to we were kind of focusing on being like this black flag junior, like tough sort of hardcore thing. But you know, it's like you're high school kids from the <laughs> suburbs and not really that tough. So it doesn't cross <laughs> that way, but you can get that from, if you look at the first no use for name seven inch and, and look at the lyrics and kind of hear, you can, you can hear like where there's that, you know, your how, how much, how hard we're trying for that. But, so that band went through a whole bunch of different uh, iterations where there was, it was a six piece. And then I like Tony, uh, the, Doug stopped playing. And then that's when Tony Sly started playing guitar. And then John quit. And then I quit. And then there were a four piece again. And then Ramon quit on vocals and they needed, they had a bunch of shows coming up, so so they hit me up to be on vocals because they needed someone for the show. So I ended up joining again, yeah, as a vocalist, which I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't really have a desire to do. But I'm like, okay, so that I ended up in the band again for like another year, and then uh, realized that I wasn't into it, and then quit again, and then several years later joined again, and it, it's, it was one of those bands that always had a revolving door, mm-hmm. like. Everybody, they, they, even Chris Wilder was in it for one week. <laughs> they were because they kept they kept trying to get a second guitarist years later, and and they kept going through this revolving door of second guitarists, and and they hit up Chris Wilder, and and he he practiced, he learned everything, he went to a show that they were supposed to play a show. Chris showed up, the rest of the band didn't show up, and he's like, "That's it, <laughs> I'm out." <laughs> so, so he was out of the band after one week. Uh, um. Were you were you guys like? Did you guys play with Banana Fish in the early incarnation, or like? Um, no, that was because that's Tony, Tony's band, right? Yeah, Tony was in Banana Fish with this guy, Jeff Mazer, who was another guy we went to school with, like like grade school or or um, like junior high or whatever. And yeah, that was after I'd actually first met Tony Sly when he was in a band called Anxiety. Um, it was also from the South Bay, and he they were a four piece, just whatever sort of punk band. Yeah, and um, um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so but, uh, sorry, go on. No, I was, I was just gonna say. So there was a. The, the first thing that I think he started kind of writing songs and was actively involved in with, he was, he was playing guitar and doing vocals on a couple of songs was anxiety. Banana fish was kind of just a side project thing. I don't even know if they ever played any shows. They definitely have that record though, right? Like, on yeah, yeah. Two. It was, it was in fact, Jeff Mazer, the guy who's the bass player for banana fish is also, it was woodpecker also put out what, <clears throat> I think he said it earlier that first uh, the first no use for name record. Yeah, and he just put it out because he was a friend of ours, and nobody else was interested. Absolutely nobody <laughs> was wanted to to help out no use for name. So 
He was just a friend of ours. He had, um, during the summer, he had some sort of connection where he was working for the city of, you know, like Palo Alto or something, filling potholes uh, as a summer job. And so he was, you know, a teenager with a lot of money. He's like, hey, I got, I got money. Why don't I put out your guy's record? Like, yeah, <laughs> cool. Somebody's going to put out the record. So that's how the first news for a name record came out. Um, And so I guess like now we can kind of transition into what I'm sure will be a very long conversation. And no doubt, probably when you'll be like, Damien, please let me go on and live my life. <laughs> please, you're punishing me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, like, so how did you kind of start Slapham? Like what led you to decide to do your own label? Um, I, I, early on it was just because, uh, I just wanted to, I want, I love the idea of putting out records, but I think also because kind of going back to the whole thing with, um, with just being a fan, mm-hmm. just a fan of everything and seeking out everything, not only, um, <clears throat> you know, going through maximum rock and roll and, and buying every single record, every single hardcore record I could find, which yeah, at the time was kind of almost an achievable goal. You know, because it was there, there was kind of a finite amount of releases each month. <laughs> yeah, and you know, if you didn't have any other expenses and you're a, a teenager with disposable income and and a you know a, a job at Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, you could you could just keep buying records, which I did, and I was, um, and so you know that that I was buying all those records, but also there are all these demos. I started getting into tape trading. Which which was like a way to find out about even more bands. Like, okay, well, this is great. I bought these ten new releases this month, but what else is out there? Oh, hey, there's these demos. I want to write to these these bands for these demos, or I'm gonna. What's this tape trading? Oh, someone has this demo that that I can't find anywhere, and you know I've got this demo that they want, and then I start getting into this whole tape trading circuit, and I had this Xerox list of all these uh, demos and live shows and. And stuff like that that um, I'd send out to people, and you'd see ads in the back of Maximum Rock and Roll and Flip Side of like, okay, my your list gets mine. You know, you, you send someone your list, and then they send you theirs, and then you just start trading cassettes. Mm-hmm. You just send them a list of, hey, I want I want this, this, and this. And um, so, I think around you know eighty seven or so. I was intrigued by the idea of putting out records, but also the fact that I was getting all these demos and there were a lot of local bands that I was seeing that I couldn't figure out why no one wanted to put out their records. And, you know, kind of going back to the whole no use for name thing, it's like not like we were such a great band at that time and warranted having a release out, but that was like my mindset. It's like, well, how come no one wants to help out no use for name? You know, we've mm-hmm. got <laughs> we put all these shows, we got these recordings, but there's no offers to do anything. And I knew a lot of bands like that. And I was a fan of a lot of other bands. I'm like, how come n- there's no label interest? And so that was kind of the, you know, you know what, what inspired me to be like, you know, I, I should just start putting out these bands. Maybe, maybe I'm the one who's crazy. Like I think <laughs> these bands are great and nobody else does, but um, you know, I, I want to help these bands out. And so um, that's how slap a ham got started is basically, um, you know, the first releases up till, I don't know. I, I I'd have to look at the discography, but at a certain point, at least the first 
three years or so, it was all just people who I knew who I felt weren't getting the attention that they deserve. And it's kind of, it, it, I don't think a lot of people would believe it. If you, if you look at it in retrospect, especially the, the very earliest releases being, um, pissed happy children and infest and the Melvins and no use for name and Fu Manchu. And you know, yeah. like you go through all these, it's like, no, but seriously, nobody cared about these bands at the time. Yeah. But it's crazy. Cause like, like you, you said right there, uh, one thing before we get into the discography thing, uh, but when did you kind of have that epiphany moment where you started saying like, Oh, it's not necessarily metal. I don't like, I just like extreme music, like right across the board, because you put out some stuff that is arguably pretty metal. Yeah. Uh, in presentation, at least on slap him, that it was obviously it, it's killer, but yeah. like when, when did you kind of have that epiphany kind of moment where you're like, this is all good. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think it was just kind of a, a slow process of really, mm-hmm just being into extreme music and, and, and um, I'm not sure how to describe it or how how I reached that point necessarily. Um, But it was, it was just kind of a, a time where, again, I think it was just a lot of stuff that I felt was unappreciated or maybe a lot of that early pre grindcore kind of stuff that was more metal. Um, it's like, I, I, I liked it because it was extreme, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like cock rock metal. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, they, they like metal, but they clearly there's some sort of like hardcore roots in it because you're, you're being, because it's extreme, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I, I think that's where at that point, there was kind of this weird fork in the road where all the bands that I became involved with, as far as putting out on the label, um, that became the, what was called the power violence scene that all kind of branched off more in the punk direction. Whereas everything else, like the bands that were on the, in the earache sort of direction, were all metal mm-hmm. based. I could consider all that stuff. It was like, the, those were guys who, we were all of the same mindset, but it was more like a metal thing where, you know, Napalm Death is going to sell 20,000 copies of their album. And I'm going to sell, if I'm lucky, 1,000, maybe 2,000 copies of the thing I'm putting out. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just kind of more of a, it, it was just a difference of, of bands I'm working with having a DIY, more of a DIY background. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really explaining it correctly, but. No, I kind of get what you're saying though, because it is like there is that thing in metal where there's like these bands that you just you can tell there's punk, right? Like Sepultura, yeah, yeah, or, or or like Celtic Frost, even like you can hear that there's like something raging in there that's not Molly Crew. Oh yeah, yeah. first Molly Crew record though, kind of kind of rages too though. Um, <laughs> uh, where, uh, as far as like the the label goes. When you decided to do it, why did you decide to do flexies as the first thing? And also, like, odd-shaped flexies. Um, I think I decided to do that because I just wanted to try and get attention mm-hmm. to label. You know, mm-hmm. that that's why I decided to go with, like, more of the novelty thing of, you know, let me just do 
Uh, well, I started out with the Flexi because it was, first of all, cheaper. It was cheaper than doing hard vinyl by, I don't remember how much, like probably just a couple hundred bucks, but at Enough. the time, there's a, there's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out something for the first time. Um, it's not, clearly, I don't have an established label. And I'm going to, I remember it was about $900 which was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, if I'm going to spend $900 on something, I need to try and make sure, rather than just like putting out a record by bands that nobody cares about, um, I need to have some sort of, some sort of hook, you know? Yeah. <laughs> which is why, um, first of all, I went to Flexi because it was cheaper and seemed, it seemed more attainable because um, like doing a seven inch was like, okay, well you got to go to a mastering guy and then you get the, then they do the stampers. I'm like, I, I don't know what that is. This, this company, <laughs> Evatone, if I just send them the tape, they'll just, they'll just send me the flexies. It's, it's just easy. It's just like a, it's one step. I give it to them. They give it back to me that I can deal with. Cause I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's another reason it started out that way. But, um, Flexies were cheaper, and also um, when when I got their catalog, they had all these different sizes. I'm like, oh shit, yeah! <laughs> I'm just gonna do like a crazy size, and that will be. I'm gonna do colored vinyl. I'm gonna do a weird size, and that'll be something that will kind of grab people's attention. Like if they don't if they don't know who these bands are or don't care who the bands are, uh, maybe someone will buy it because it's kind of a weird novelty. So. I think that's why the the first couple ended up being flexies. And also there's like a real, like strong, right up to the Blarg comp, there's like a super strong aesthetic similarity. Like they don't look at all the same, but like, I guess it's maybe just the strong graphic component to all the records. I guess that's from your art background, right? Um, Maybe because, you know, some of them, I'm trying to think. I'm thinking on what all the releases were. It's like um, Neanderthal, Fu Manchu, yeah. Sticky. Yeah, because uh, I did I did the layouts for most of them. I didn't uh, the Fu Manchu one. They did themselves. Um, I think I put together all the others, though. A like Capitalist Casualties one. I I did, um, and I did that one. I did that one as a fold out thing just because I was, I was a fan of those crass releases, you mm-hmm. know, where like you, you buy it and anything on crass records would have a, a huge fold out poster sleeve sort of thing. So, um, that's why I wanted to do that for, you know, I did that for a couple of capitalist releases and, and also that the no comment record. Um, but yeah. And, and, uh, how did you decide like what records that you wanted to do in color? Cause some records that you did in color early on, some you didn't, some had limited, some didn't. Was it just like kind of like by the project where you picking this stuff out or. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think. Uh, I did the nice for name one. I did all on colored and I just had them just do. It, it was with the, the first couple of releases. It was the, um, the infest PHC split flexi was the very first one. And then the second one was a Melvin's flexi. And then the third one was the news for name seven inch. Mm -hmm. And so since I was venturing into hard vinyl territory, 
um, I wanted to do colored vinyl. And when I was talking to the pressing plant, I was trying to figure out ways to, <laughs> to do it as cheaply as possible. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, if you want, we could just kind of throw in whatever we have left over from all the other pressings. And, uh, you know, that'll be your cheapest option. So like if, instead of just doing a custom one, we'll give you a break and just kind of give you the, the leftovers of, of whatever else we're pressing. I'm like, okay, there you go. It's a deal. <laughs> so that's why all the no use for name records were uncolored and it was just completely random. So, um, and then the one after that, the Neanderthal one was, those were black just for aesthetic purposes because we talked about actually you know the neanderthal record i wanted to do as a picture disc whoa just, that would be sick i didn't have the money for it so it would have been like the only good picture disc ever yeah <laughs> well i wanted to do it because once i got the label art from those guys with the the split penis yeah I'm like, this would be so cool i <laughs> I said, you know, you know, because what was actually now that I think about it, what had inspired that me, me and Eric Wood were talking about. Um, there's that uh, that that big black release. Um, what was it called? Oh, the one that came in the body bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It has all the, the one came in the body bag, and, and it's like this black body bag, and you take it out, and didn't the sleeve have some like like autopsy sort of, photos? Or yeah, something? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's actually. Um, kind of the aesthetic, what kind of led to why the Neanderthal fighting music seven inch looks oh, the way that's that it awesome. does. I'm like, okay. I said, well, I can, I'll just, why don't we just do just like this block print? We'll just make it black. Like everything's going to be black. And initially, when we found that split penis photo that we used, um, I'm like, that would be so cool. Like if we don't tell anybody it's a picture disc and then they just get it and pull it out and they're like, Oh, (laughs) because at that, at that time, especially it was, it was pretty shocking and unusual. Um, so we thought it'd be like good shock value to have something like that, but it's just, it it, it was going to be so expensive, Mm -hmm. you know, for me at the time that we just went with kind of standard, whatever release I did do a short repress after that. Of a oh, couple yes. hundred on colored. On purple. Because. Chris, yeah, that record yeah. has haunted me. Much like the aborted <laughs> uh, test press of the complete fighting music. Oh. But there are... I'm not, I'm not even sure I have one. But <laughs> I, I, think, I think I even know who you soldiers to, actually, at one point of that. Oh, record. yeah. Um, but that is like... Yeah, it's just so cool. Like There's so many things in this catalog that are just awesome. And I think at the time, and, and even now, some people will be like, oh, slap him with Power Violence label. And it's like... That's just a sliver. Like you were doing such a cool job of just documenting extreme music, like right across the board. Like I hate God. Like once again, like Fu Manchu, I hate God, Melvin, Spaz, Rupture, like all these bands, millions of MDC. You did an MDC record. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I ended up, well, when I moved to San Francisco, I ended up being friends with those guys and we did, um, you know, I was working with, uh, capitalist casualties i mean for all of us mdc it was like one of those legendary mm-hmm. bands um so just that that's just kind of how it came together and at the time chris wilder was playing guitar for mdc and uh that that's how that whole thing came together not like it would be difficult to put out something for them but you know it was still it was still cool to do yeah no it's it's an awesome record but also like you know 
Burning Witch, like the first Burning Witch record, yeah, is a slap ham record. Is there was there any band that you wanted to work with that you couldn't, or or that you think should have been on the label or could have fit on the label? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I know that there were some, there's some who I had hit up that we never did anything together. Well, you know, like the um, the Fu Manchu record actually. That only happened because that record was supposed to be a virulence record. Um, if you remember that band? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I was a huge fan of that band. They're they're very very flaggy, mm-hmm. and um, and live they're awesome, like super powerful. Um, very Alchemy much record that, is also like another label that put out like so much fire, like so many great yeah. records on that label, like virulence. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they, fortunately they they put out that Virulence album, and it, and then Southern Lord did a a reissue. Reissue, yeah, that, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I I I was in touch with uh, Scott Hill for a long time, and and really wanted to do a record for them. And then when it came time to do it, um, he's like, "Yeah, we broke up, but we're." Uh, but me and some of the same guys were we're still doing stuff, but um, it's called Fu Manchu. I'm like, that's fine. Just just record, just <laughs> record and send me something. And um, and they did, and I liked it. I didn't like it as much as Virulence, but I'm like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, I'm into it. And it, clearly, they were going a, a kind of a Melvin's direction at the time. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'll put it out. I, I put I did a thousand of those. That that was strangely enough. That was one of the hardest records to get rid of like i had i had a thousand copies for years <laughs> like nobody wanted that record <laughs> well it's funny too because like you know like them burning witch i hate god like there's a lot of like sludgier stuff melvin's of course obviously as well yeah on the label so to balance out the, the speed you need those sludgy records but i guess the kids that want yeah. the speed don't want the sludge all the time yeah, well, you know the the Burning Witch one when that came out because that was the later '90s after Slapham had kind of uh, made a name for itself and become it, it kind of had an identity as oh the the power violence label. Mm-hmm. Um, so Burning Witch putting that out was kind of a curveball to all of that. I think because after years of of, of putting out like stuff that I liked, but it it, it was kind of reaching a point where okay, a lot of this stuff, it's all in the same vein and it's kind of, you know, like like the the one note sort of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the, the same punchline over and over again. It's a, But I, I've always liked everything and Burning Witch was one of those bands where it's like, you know, typically um, Slapham wasn't known for putting out a band of, of that ilk necessarily, but mm. you know, I got that, that burning witch demo I'm like, Oh my God. I, I, I listened to that seriously for about half a year straight. I was just addicted to it. I'm like, fuck, this band is good. This band is so good. And it just turned out that for the longest time, I just couldn't, I had all these releases planned and I just couldn't do anything for them. Plus it wasn't, you know, I wasn't sure okay, well, I, I could put it out, but is anybody going to buy it? But, you know, fuck it. That's the reason I started the label. It wasn't <laughs> it was to put out stuff I liked and not because I, I was convinced people were going to buy it. So eventually um, yeah, I put out that 12-inch. I remember getting um, a lot of 
a lot of weird <laughs> feedback from people who just kind of people liked it, but a lot of people didn't really get it. And they're like, "What's with the Getty Lee vocals, dude?" You know? <laughs> yeah, because like of all the stuff you put out, that's got to be one of the most jarring. And it's like, uh-huh. and it's it's probably those vocals. Those vocals are like, I like I love it, but like yeah. they're they're definitely not, you know, like the most uh, soothing vocal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Type thing. Um, where, where, uh, at what point did you kind of decide that you wanted to stop? Like, I, I could punish you about this whole catalog all night and go through record by record, but yeah, let's uh, go, let's go for a marathon. Let's make this the longest <laughs> turned out of punk podcast ever. Oh my god, Chris, please don't make me do this to you. Please, I, I, I will. We're, we're not even at spaz forming. Yeah, that's true. We're believe me, I got I got questions. You you worked at Fat Records. I got a whole episode worth of questions about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you have a whole episode worth of answers about that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but there was a point where you kind of like became, you know, disillusioned with doing this label. Uh what led to that and and also I guess, you know, was that, you know, something that, you know, you you wanted to do just because you kind of thought you had done what you needed to say or was it just becoming too much to try and balance this yeah i i think that was that was a part of it and i don't know timing wise it all just kind of a, a lot of things i'll just a, a bunch of planets aligned at the same time um the main one was the fact that um people just weren't buying stuff anymore it was after you know, I, I've talked to a few people about this, and like my friend, you know, Athena. Um, she's doing the, um, you know, Athena from Six Weeks Absolutely, and, yeah. and yeah. Um, she and uh, this woman Melissa are working on this power violence documentary uh, right now, and and they interviewed me last summer, I guess it was, and um, she was kind of laughingly like, I saw in some interview that that you blame the end of slap a ham on nine 11. <laughs> I go, well, I don't blame it on nine 11, but it, it did contribute in a, in a larger sense in that. I mean, that, that was at a time in the, the early two thousands, you've got a climate where nobody's buying vinyl. Certainly nobody's buying cassettes people are just now stopping the purchase any sort of CD purchases because CD burners are, are being made available. And so especially independent music, it's like, Oh, well screw it. You know, I can, mm-hmm. <laughs> we can, we can just rip a copy from, from my friend. And then on top of that, after, uh, after nine 11, um, just the economy in general just went in the toilet. And, you know, most of my sales were through a distributor, which was Revolver USA. So Revolver USA, typically I'd put out a release and they would take, I don't know, like I'd, I'd give them like 1,500 of something. Like I'd, I'd press maybe 2,000 of an album, give them 1,500. They'd sell maybe, you know, close to a thousand off the bat. And then just the, the rest of them would trickle out over the next couple of years. Um, it got to a point where people were buying less and less. And then after nine 11, like when the economy in general just went in the toilet and people weren't buying anything, 
um, you know, that, that goes to the record stores. It's like, well, okay, record stores, nobody's going into record stores, no one's buying anything. And if you're in an independent record store and you're like, okay, well, I have a choice between stocking this uh, this new Foo Fighters release and this new Yakupsi release, which one am I going to pick? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's going to be the Foo Fighters. And so the stores are buying less. And they're so I got to this point where, you know, during the last year or so, everything I put out, instead of maybe having a thousand copies go out the door, like 300 copies would go out and like, okay. And then you put out a couple duds like that in a row and it's like, all right, well now I'm not getting, I'm not getting the money back from it so I can put out anything new. And so I reached a point where I just, it just wasn't sustaining itself. I just didn't have money to put out anything. Um, I, yeah, I'd put out a bunch of CDs that nobody was buying and it, plus, I, I think when, once I kind of realized, you know, I I need to stop for financial reasons because I'm not getting my money back. It also kind of dawned on me that you know what, it's time, it's time anyway, because I've been doing this for twelve or thirteen years, and everything had kind of peaked. No one really cares about what I'm doing. It, you know, to be very honest about it, it's like there, there's really very limited interest and, and you know some of my last releases like i did the the crossed out discography no one gave a shit about that crossed out was over you're like ah whatever <laughs> you know? that's so weird too because like now i think or maybe maybe i'm wrong but i think now like that would sell really well oh yeah it would absolutely it would um there was definitely a resurgence later on but at that time it just wasn't cool like a lot of those bands that kind of were we're part of that scene, you know, capitalist and no comment, man is a bastard and, and, uh, crossed out, whatever, um, spaz, like early two thousands, nobody gave a shit. They're like, okay, that's, that's done. That's done. <laughs> that, that stuff is lame. We've moved on. Um, it's, it's so funny too. Cause like, I think by that point there was a bootleg spaz in every major city too. There was like a group of kids that were, just spaz disciples that were doing a complete ripoff of you guys. I, I yeah. can definitely think of one in Toronto and I can think of one in other cities I, I went to around that time too. Right. Right. Uh, I think that was also, you know, kind of, that was a little bit before um, there, there was easy accessibility to all that. So it wasn't like quite apparent that there were people who still Gave a shit. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, just from my perspective, it's like, okay, nobody cares. <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody's buying anything. I, I and, even, and just for me, I just wasn't that inspired. I'm like, okay, well, n- n- there aren't like a whole lot of new bands that are really doing it for me. And, you know, I put out this same sort of music and had this type of sound for so long. And, and you know, frankly, the reason I'd started, I was kind of going back to the very beginning. It's like, I started putting out these records because nobody else was interested in helping these bands out. Mm-hmm. And eventually it reaches point in the nineties where everybody wanted to put out those records, you know, labels like bovine who were putting out like these weird kind of noise rock records. Um, 
eventually morphed into, oh, hey, we're going to do all power violent stuff as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like a carbon copy of but all the stuff I was putting out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then all these, you know, labels popping up everywhere, putting all that out, which is, which is great. It's great for the bands. And, you know, that's how a scene gets started. But, um, you know, it, it, it reached that point where, where nobody cared. Everyone had kind of moved on. And, and uh, clearly that, that mini trend was over. So, <laughs> like, okay. Do you think I'm, if you kind of hang it up? Because I'm not, you know, I'm not inspired to, to put out anything. So why, why keep it going? Do you think if Spaz had leaned in a little bit more, you guys could have crossed over to more of like the metal kind of audience, you know, and like played to like more of a grind? Like Possibly. Core, I, I think know? so. Just because, you know, we had a lot of friends in that world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like the guys from I Hate God and Brutal Truth and whatever. And the guys in Napalm were, were have always been savvy to, uh, you know, slap a ham stuff and, you know, been always been into all the early extreme music. Um, but that was, you know, we, Spaz got offers from from relapse and, and stuff like that, but it just didn't, it just didn't feel right. It just didn't seem that wasn't our thing. You yeah. Know? Yep. We're kind of, that, that was our, our vibe was, you know, it's like, it's more independent and it's like, we're not going to be on a, a label that has, it's like, we, we weren't fiercely against it, but it just didn't, it just didn't feel like the right sort of thing. It's like, we didn't really want to play like big festivals or go on like a, a you know, a big tour opening for cannibal corpse or whatever, you know, <laughs> it just, that wasn't our scene. Yeah. It seems like you'd have to play the game a lot. In yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but like, you know, much like in, you know, like what a perfect career for that band, you know, spaz is like, you know, because you didn't ever do anything tacky, like a cannibal corpse, not that opening for cannibal corpse is tacky, but yeah. I mean, you didn't do it. So it's like, you know, it's kind of perfectly enshrined as this band that's like, you know, Chase. Yeah, you know, I'm really glad that we did break up when we did, because I felt at that point, which was, what, 2000, um, I felt like it kind of, in a sense, run its course as well. Like, we, we, the new stuff we were recording, I liked, but I also felt like, I, I remember at the time thinking it's kind of like, okay, now we're reaching a point where we're just going to be putting out the same record. So mm-hmm. how much longer do we need to do this? Um, and so the, the fact, the only reason that we really broke up was that I was moving from the Bay area to LA. Um, but the, the timing of that was actually very, very fortuitous because I, I think we, it, it was a good thing, you know, much like op Ivy, you know, we kind of broke up at a point where, people still cared you know? <laughs> and so as the years have gone by it, it seems like strangely enough I, I we have way more fans now than we ever did then so i, I kind of prefer it that way much like op ivy exactly well exactly. Also, also if now i'm going to start comparing spaz to other bands i've always kind of felt you guys and please don't i don't mean this in any sort of sonic way or anything like that but like spaz to me was like the hardcore beastie boys and i know beastie boys come out of hardcore yeah. But in the sense that you just you guys were like amazing at recontextualizing pop culture and and just like I don't know just being cool. Well, I think that's why I think that's why it had kind of a wider appeal than a lot of the other bands in retrospect is that it wasn't 
it, it wasn't some sort of intentional thing that we were going for. It's just we just happened to use imagery and samples and write lyrics and make references to things that were part of that underground. Uh, you know, to us, we weren't thinking pop culture, but in retrospect, it was underground pop culture at the time, which is elements of, uh, you know, Hong Kong, you know, martial arts movies mm-hmm. and, um, you know, um, rap. Yeah. Yeah. Rap and graffiti, uh, you know, like mass Mexican wrestlers. Yes. And, you know, st- stuff like that, which like it, it wasn't really on my radar as, oh, hey, this is cool. I mean, it was cool in that we liked it, but not like, oh, this is this is popular in, in underground culture. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't at the time really, I wasn't in tune with kind of like the whole hip hop scene at that time, like Max and Dan were. But um, you know, kind of looking back on it, because I listen to a lot of that stuff now. Like I've been even lately, I've been addicted to these old uh, Stretch and Bobito. Um, uh, radio show yeah. tapes that are posted on Mixcloud, and there, there's tons of like hip hop stuff from like '96, '97 that I've never heard that I think is amazing now that I know those guys were into then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all of those got all those rap artists at that time were were referencing. You know, I think like and more popular since like Wu Tang and stuff like that. But it was all. You know, same sort of deal with like the the martial arts references and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. samples. Yeah, no, it just it, it it's like you know, as you say, it, it wasn't like trying to be cool. It's just like what you guys were about, and it's not yeah. like being about that stuff made you cool in punk rock at the time. Or right, right. So yeah, it wasn't like to imply that you guys were like you know carefully devising the scheme to right, become right. hip and popular and cool. No, it's, I mean, it just kind of came out of the fact that that's what we, you know, collectively, those were things that we we wrote about and were influenced by just things that we liked. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, obviously, all the lyrics aren't that serious. Um, the fact that we're writing over 200 songs and you got to write lyrics about something. <laughs> so, you know, it eventually devolves into, hey, let's just write a bunch of you know, inside jokes about our friends or whatever. It's like the the song is 20 seconds anyway. Who gives a shit? Let's just. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, which brings me to one of your most subversively astute, cool moves as a band. Uh, one of the last releases, the 25 to life split. Oh, what's yeah. the deal with that record? Is it a bootleg or is it real or? No, what? it was real. It was real. It's, it's absolutely legit. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how it really came about. <laughs> um, but you know, um, Rick from 25 to life, um, he was uh, along with a, a lot of other guys who you wouldn't think like Will from Mortician and, and folks like that. Like they were supporters of all the early slap of ham stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they bought everything that came out. Um, you know, I think back about all the mail orders I got, like Will, Every single every single release, cute three dollars in an envelope. Here you go. Send yeah. me send me a no comment seminage. Every single release, Rick Rick Healy. It's like here, send me <laughs> send me the man as a bastard. <laughs> like that, and you know, it's like here, check out here's here's a sticker from my new band. Yeah, Twenty Five to Life. 
Oh, yeah, and I've got another band coming correct, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, Dave Whitty would, would be mail ordering for me and, and just stuff like that. It's like, you know, those guys were into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, of, of course, you know, 25 to Life turned into 25, 25 to Life. And uh, I, I, I don't know who came up with the idea or whatever, but I, I remember that that was one of the last releases we came up with. And uh, we all just loved the idea because it wasn't, it wasn't typical. You know, it's like, okay, well, yeah, you're going to do a split with another power violence band. Or, oh, yeah, it's going to be a spaz suppression split or a spaz as a bastard thing. Or a spaz, you know, it's like the expected thing. It's like, no. Fuck yeah, let's do it with like this, you know, beat down band from New York. Let's do it. That'd be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and so um it was recorded and put and I'm drawing a blank on what the what the stupid label was. I think it was Baby. very, very distribution put it out. That's right. right. That's right. It was very and it's very distribution. What was their label called? Do you remember? I thought it was just called Very, but maybe it had oh no, now I'm picturing another logo, but I can't. Yeah, yeah, it was it was very distribution, and they had their own label, which I'm drawing a blank on what it was. But they they had everything. Like both bands had recorded, they had they'd actually done a pressing of records. All they had to do was complete the covers and distribute it, and they just never did. And I, I don't I don't know what the whole story was behind it, but it was like right before very distribution folded. Yeah, I don't know. I. I I'd heard over the years some sort of drama, which I don't remember, and it's not worth repeating anyway. But the, the bottom line is they had they supposedly had thousands of these records sitting in boxes somewhere and just didn't release them for years. And there had been a couple hundred copies here and there that had been that kind of like leaked out. Uh, they did limited covers um, for like there was one for. Hellfest. The very first copies I got were for maybe, maybe Twenty Five to Life was playing Hellfest or something like that because um, there was a, a cover with ACDC on it and it, and it was the Highway to Hellfest cover. Okay. <laughs> and then there was another one that was some like old Japanese drawing of people walking across a bridge in the rain. There were like a couple hundreds of that, I think. But uh, allegedly, there are thousands of these that were just sitting in boxes for, I, I think it was about eight years or so. And then they finally, one day, released it. And there, there's a whole variety of different covers for that. Uh, yeah, I've seen the O.J. Simpson one. I don't even think I had that one. Uh, I saw that one online. What the, what the hell is that? So, yeah, I think I've only ever seen it online. I, I don't know if I've ever actually even seen one in person. Like, it's one of those records that I remember hearing about coming out and then didn't come out as you say and then just yeah. kind of started showing up and yeah people were talking about it for a long time it never really came out and then years later when everyone had forgotten about it like it just it just kind of showed up everywhere <laughs> nothing <laughs> stays buried again. forever <laughs> yeah so i don't know if i if i find one i'll give it to you for sure oh i thank you very much um i'm honestly chris i promise i'm going to let you go live your life in in any moment, but I do have two more questions if that's okay. And then yes. I need you to come back for a part two at some point, because there's a lot more punishing. Uh, if you can believe this <laughs> questions for me to ask. We would talk about, uh, you mentioned all the fat record stuff. Cause I, I, uh, I know you had spike on recently. Yes. Well, I think that's like, on, honestly, and I brought it up to spike, you know, that's like, you go through who came through that job. 
you know, yourself included, a lot of impressive people doing a lot of impressive things in music. Well, you know, um, San Francisco is not that big of a town. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very small, big city, uh, you know, especially kind of in the earlier years. There's, you know, when there's kind of a smaller core of people, you know, every you you think back on like, whoa, how the, how, the, how do all these bands know each other? And it's like, well, you just, that's who was around. Yeah. You know, Sticky and Neurosis and Op Ivy and uh, No Effects and you know, whomever. It's like, no, those were just the bands who were around at the time. Um, but, you know, because I'd known Fat Mike in the late 80s and eventually, you know, I just kind of seen him here and there throughout the years. And I was working at Alternative Tentacles actually in the early '90s, and then I'd been I I was doing Slapaham, and I was working at Alternative Tentacles for about three years, and then Mike hit me up to uh, to be the manager at Fat in about '95, I think it was, um, because it, you know there was only I think there were only like four or five people who worked there. And it's just that the, the they were growing, and he knew that I'd been putting out records for a while. It's like, hey, I don't have time to do this. You should do it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's how I ended up there. And then you know, Spike, I forget how how they knew him. He came into the fold, and it's just you know, he, yeah, we can kind of go on and on. Chris Shiflett came on board at one point. And... Well, yeah, like, and and also the the guy who did Allied, right? Or no? Uh... Oh yeah, John Yates. He worked at. Uh, I worked with him at. Um, at uh, Alternative Tentacles. He was a graphics guy. Actually, you know, I take that back because uh, Johnny's did freelance um, some of the uh, some of the graphics for Fat Records when I was there because we needed a layout guy and, and John was doing freelance. So I actually had him do, I think he worked on the Snuff albums because he was a big fan. So I called him up about those. <laughs> did a few others. Good taste. Uh, What's that? Good taste. I love snuff too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and what's a trip is that you know finding out that uh, that Duncan and uh, you know what's his name Tom Goober are are in the Toy Dolls now. And whoa, <laughs> I love I love how this stuff just keeps circling back. I fucking love Goober Patrol too. That's like mm-hmm. the first time they've ever been brought up on this podcast. And I yeah, I am great band, great band. I guess nineteen ninety five is like that's when that that label like exploded right like yeah as far as, yeah uh and it, it's it's like you know growing up in canada being in such close proximity to quebec obviously that was huge here uh what was it like kind of working at that label at that time like was it just like overnight or was it kind of as you say like a gradual thing like mike was noticing happening or well when when i had started there i mean it was already kind of next level stuff for me mm-hmm. because I mean, not only just slap a hand, but I'd been working at alternative tentacles as a day job for three years. And that was a, a four person staff. And, you know, n- none of those were, you know, is it, basically, it's always been, um, you know, Jello's label and he just kind of puts out whatever he likes. Yeah. Regard- talk about punk rock. It's like, who gives a shit? Like what I'm going to put out a country record. I don't care if no one buys it. You know, I'm putting out a rap record. I'm putting out, you know, it's just like whatever. Whatever tickles his fancy, which is how it should be. 
And he still goes to shows too, right? Like it's not like there's so many people in the music biz that you could be like, you don't really like music, but that's not something you can say about Jello. Like that guy uh-huh. fucking loves music. Oh my God. And, and the, the amount of, I mean, talk about someone who's a lifelong fan and just kind of consumer. And mm-hmm. I don't mean consumer in a negative sense because it, it's almost, you know, that's how I describe myself as yeah. consumer, meaning like you consume as much as possible, as much as you can take in and absorb um, you know, I'm still that person. I still get on uh, Spotify, Spotify or Mixcloud or or whatever or music blogs and just try and hear like, okay, what haven't I heard? I just yeah. want to, I just want to hear something different. Yeah. And he is definitely that guy. Um, but you know, he backs it up with, you know, what I I don't care if this doesn't fit into any genre whatsoever. I'm going to put it out. Mm-hmm. Put it Wesley but, Willis you know, records. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, going from that to Fat Records, which w- was already humming along fine. I mean, it's obviously it is, you know, the, the No Effects label. So there's, it's already got a huge following. It's got really strong sales, more so than than you know, ninety five percent of independent punk labels out there. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, you know, to kind of go in that environment where, okay, there's, you know, there's bigger pressings and there's, and it's kind of easier to get things done. And there's a lot more of a budget to, to do things you want to do. And then to have it, you know, get even bigger from that point on, you know, from that, you know, around 95 or so. And, and of course, you know, at that point I quit no use for name three times and, Guess who our our main artist is that's coming out on Fat Records when I start? Oh, it's the, it's the new No Use for a Name album. I'm like, oh my, I just can't can't get away from these guys. So, <laughs> uh, um, also, I want to ask you about a couple other records on the label. When Short Music for Short People came out, were you like, "That's my idea. Don't steal no. my idea." No, because he told me he told me he was stealing it. <laughs> He actually, he actually upfront said, you know what? Uh, Cause I, you know, he, I gave him copies of my releases and yeah. I, you know, he, he'd had the, uh, the Blair compilations. So you're and telling me he, I should hit up fat Mike to get a copy of purple, uh, fighting music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe he has one. Okay. I'm going to, sure. I'm going to send a text yeah. after the, we get off the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Ask him. Um, but no, he, he told me point blank. He's like, you know what? He's like this. He's like this is a cool idea. He's like, you know, what? I want to do this, but with good bands. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay. And I said, but Spaz has got to be on it. He's like, okay. So that's. <laughs> uh, so he stole my idea, but uh, my my bargaining chip was that uh, he put a Spaz song on there. Yeah, well, I was I definitely thought that was small concession. I didn't know you worked at the label at the time but I was so pissed that he stole your idea when it came out. <laughs> also, didn't you think it was kind of bullshit on the fuck the kid seven inch that they didn't credit the Neos for the cover on the, uh, on the no effects, fuck the kid seven inch. They do a Neos cover and instead of crediting the Neos, they credit it to stupid Canadians. Did they really? Yeah. I don't even remember that. Uh, remember. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm just airing this out that. again. 
Yeah, no, that that does suck. <laughs> I don't I don't recall that, but no. I brought it up Neos, to Mike to before. Me, the, me, the Neos are absolute godhead to me. Absolutely. Sure. That's what I thought. Yeah. I'm like, surely you would have been like, if you were aware of this, put a stop to it. So <laughs> that's that label head running headlong over yeah. the manager. <laughs> no, I was there when that came out for sure. In fact, I took that cover. I took that stuff over to uh, – because someone had made there's that that punk doll, punk doll yeah that, yeah and someone someone made that and sent it to Mike and so he wanted that on the cover but we couldn't really figure out what to do so he made yeah we threw together he threw together this weird collage and he's like okay I just want the doll uh, just put it on top and so I found some place nearby which you know this is a mid 90s so getting like a high resolution photo of something is like slight ordeal um so i had to take everything to, to some photographer somewhere and we like laid it out in this studio and kind of positioned it and stuff but no, i was I was definitely there for the release in fact that's the reason that some of those are on colored vinyl like the those fat releases that came out yeah <laughs> in that in that window when the, especially the seven inches that came out on colored vinyl that's because i told them they needed to do it because that's what that's what i wanted I said, you know, as someone who buys records, I want just do a limited pressing, do something cool, do a couple hundred. Were you there green. when when the, the the decline came out then? No, 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 okay. no. Decline came out after, well, after I I had left the label because you know that on clear vinyl now is like like two thousand dollars or something. Oh, really? It's insane. Oh like they definitely did really well with your idea. Well, they didn't, but the secondary market has done really well with your idea. Wow. It's all my idea. I know. And also that's I'm waiting for my royalty check, Mike. I tell well, believe me, I, I think also the uh the other thing that's awesome about that seven inch, the fuck the kid seven inch, is that's later on top of the propagandi seven inch. Which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is later on top of the no effect seven inch. Yeah. So that's like yeah. the that's like the opening in the Chris Mike beef. Right. That's where it first exactly. gets going on the seven inch. Exactly. Inches. It's all the all the layers, yeah, exactly. all the layers, absolutely. Yeah, we got, let's we gotta bring back beefs. We gotta bring. Well, you know what? I I think we're probably better off without them. But yeah, that's true. That's, okay, let's not bring back beefs. Let's not bring them back. But one thing I gotta bring back is you on the show because I've kept you far too long. This has been a huge thrill for me, and we have definitely, I think, set the record for. This and the Robbie Brookside episode are the record, I think, for the longest over over the internet yeah. episodes I've ever done. So, Chris, thank set, you. Set the, re- set the record for people tuning out halfway through? No, dude. This is – believe me. If they tune <laughs> out, it's their loss because – Exactly. That's who, what I always say. I, as, as I told you, who else but you can link Cool Keith, which we didn't even get to in this episode. We'll have to save for part two. Fat Records – and and like Mexican death metal bands, like like classic Me- Mexican death metal bands, and MDC. That's true. You're like the you're like ultimate. That, was, that would be yours truly. <laughs> that it was definitely. <laughs> well, on behalf of yours truly, thank you so much. Oh my god, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for coming on the show. And you heard right there. I got to have Chris back for more, many, many more parts. Many, 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 many more parts. 
are coming for you of Chris Dodge on the show, of Chris Dodge on the show. Have mercy on me. Uh, yeah, that was so much fun. Um, there's going to be an incredible footnotes coming for this one, believe me. Oof, oof, I enjoyed doing that. Speaking of enjoying things, uh, when I started doing this podcast, uh, I had a list of people that I eventually wanted on it. And there was one person that I had on that list and I was just like, yeah, it, it probably, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. But if it does happen, it'd be amazing because this is the person that I have to give full, full credit for, for opening the door to punk to me. Uh, this is a person who has done that, I'm sure, for countless other people around the world. This is a person who has made some of the greatest rock records of all time. This is someone who has brought um, experimental music into the mainstream. This is someone that brought hardcore more into the mainstream for a lot of people or certainly brought it into a mainstream in a way that it would be appreciated uh, intellectually. Or I think he was part of that, I should say. This is someone who was on the motherfucking Simpsons. I am talking about the one, the only, next week on the show, even worse, and Sonic Youth's very own Thurston Moore. Woo! This is a good one, folks. This is a... This is one that goes uh, to a lot of really obscure early New York punk stuff that I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd get an opportunity to talk about with Thurston Moore. Uh, yeah, this is a dream come true next week on the show. But I'm, I, I'm having a great time right now. We're going from strength to strength on this thing because I'm getting all my heroes on. All these people I want to punish. And there's more to come. There is more to come. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening. Sorry my voice is so harsh. Sorry my microphone's in the van. Sorry that this is late. But one thing I'm not sorry for is uh, how much fun I have doing this thing and how much I appreciate you all listening to it. Thank you very much, and I will see you next week. Go sign your organ donor cards. Please go sign your organ donor cards and uh, stay safe. And anyone can make this culture. Love you. Bye.